I'm like, come on, it's Footloose and the Sound of Music without singing. I would be so happy. Why don't you want to see this? I would be so happy if that had been the show description. (laughs) Come on. And the image is just you shrugging at the camera. How is this not something you all want to watch? I don't understand. <laughs> I should be knocking down my door. I should be getting twice the attendance the Bollywood does. No, <laughs> I shouldn't. Come gather all your poets, all your storytelling freaks. Drumming your golden esophagi, spilling floral frilly speech. You are the chosen noisemakers, the rabble that won't sleep. The ugly little secrets walking proudly down the street. Each story holds a thousand seeds, a proverbial pomegranate. Possibilities, a not so silent planet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Not So Silent Planet. We wonder why this podcast lasts so damn long. <laughs> it's oh. all, it's all in the consonants. <laughs> Uh, I'm your host, Philip Lowe. With me is my co-host... Ben Not-So-Sandell. Yeah, great. Let's keep this going for the next couple of months. That's what's called a, called a, a recall. Yeah, except for this will be out of order. Callback. So. It's a callback. A callback. Uh, uh, comedy is writer this? Tim Wick had to remember what a callback was called. <laughs> hey, we've had a long night already and I have not been drinking. This so. is uh, And this is our guest for the evening... Tim uh, Wick. I did more of this, the, the, the vowels. That's there. true. That's true. Right. It's all in the vowels with you. Yeah, that. And also joining us tonight, Pat Cast Harrigan. Pat Cast Harrigan. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> We've been thinking about that for two hours. <laughs> you can <laughs> die now. You will never surpass this achievement. Paid off. <laughs> and uh, to... Um, also, we have this lineup because Convergence is coming up, and we all like Convergence, and this is gonna we be may be engaging. Convergence too? Yeah. Jesus. That's no, the idea. It's gonna be Both of these are going to be in June. It's going to be before Convergence 2017. <laughs> <laughs> That's how Convergence rolls. Stop saying things that are true things. Tim, we are discussing <laughs> a book you that you... 2018. <laughs> it's, I thought this was 2017. Have, I, have we skipped a year? There's a joke going missing somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we have two comedy writers firing jokes past each other. And missing every target. <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> Tim, uh, hilarious comedy writer Tim Wick suggested you have recommended the first nonfiction book for us to discuss, That's which right. is speculative nonfiction. I thought that was against the rules. Uh, I allowed it. did not tell me no. <laughs> <laughs> this book is Lost Moon, The Perilous Voyage of Apollo 13. Do, 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 do. <laughs> which is co-written, oh. which is co-written by the commander of, Jim uh, Lovell. yeah, yeah, of the Apollo 13 mission, which is, uh, it, uh, it is 
it is a legitimately fascinating book. I yeah. don't know how else to put, but yeah. it's it's a great illustration of one of the very few instances in which you have a real world situation that is a team of scientists desperately working against a ticking clock to save lives. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, 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 is, it is a real world narrative that follows a speculative fiction narrative. And the reason yeah. I recommend the, the book I'm reading right now is The Martian. Yeah. Which is a, I thought of The Martian book. while I was it's, reading it. It's a it. very <laughs> enjoyable book. I, I think The Martian is is a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, and, and it's basically the same story. Mm. It's It's... A character, I mean, Apollo 13 is three people, but it is it is somebody who is trapped in a nearly impossible to survive situation and has to figure out the science to get themselves out of it. No, yeah. And uh, that's that's why Lost Moon to me is is just a fascinating book. It's it's all the science that they had to do to figure out how to keep three people alive mm. once they realized they weren't going to be able to land on the moon. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it had okay. to be a bunch of MacGyvers. Well, yeah, and it they was. really were. It's it really, really cool. was. It, it really was that situation of going. All right, we've got all this shit. Here's on what we have. Uh, we've got the- all this stuff, <laughs> and it's not going to do what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out what else it can do <laughs> to fix all these problems that we're just dealing with one after the other. And, and, and I had the thought that this is the narrative of every sort of space disaster. Like, it's Armageddon, or The Martian, or Gravity, or every, like, every, like, there's no way the people who created those movies were not aware of this specific And as a writer, (laughs) as a writer, when I'm writing science fiction, Mm -hmm. Lost Moon acts as sort of an inspiration to me, because... Mm -hmm. To me, I find the limitations of actual physics a lot more interesting than fake mm-hmm. physics. So the idea that if you're going to write a story about long-distance interstellar travel, it will take a long time. You know, and that's that's a law of physics that I'm not willing to break. I'm willing to break the law. I'm I'm, I'm willing to allow you know stasis so people can survive a 200-year journey, but I'm not willing to sacrifice the 200-year journey. Right. Not willing to sacrifice the idea that sending somebody to the closest star is going to take years. Mm. And how does that impact that person's experience? How does that impact the way that experience is perceived yeah. on Earth or wherever that that, that void starts but from? What if you introduce the idea of wormholes? You can, <laughs> you can do that. I mean, introducing the idea of wormholes is a completely legitimate way to work with that idea of how long it's going to take. But you know what? How far away is the wormhole? And how far away is your destination <laughs> once you get to the other side of the wormhole? And how long does taking go, ta- does going through the wormhole take? How long does it, do you perceive it taking versus how long it actually takes from outside? There, there, There's a lot of ways to look at the limitations mm. of physics and how that can affect your story. And, and Lost Moon yeah. is a great example. And, of and physics I love- is our limiting factor. I, I love the image in here too of uh, just the rooms of uh, the people whose job is just to do math with like piles of scratch paper, just trying to solve these problems with the numbers that they're given. Yeah, <laughs> and like the well, uh, <laughs> um, I, I I love the Apollo program or mm. the you know the early space program stories about the early space program. 
uh, Hidden Figures, which is a movie. I've seen the movie, and I actually want to read the book. But um, the the characters in that, well, one of the characters in that is what they call a computer. Her mm-hmm. job is to sit there and do math. Mm-hmm. And that's what they would call them. They would call now, them computers. Computer people, is a gendered term. It was women who would yeah. compute that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, you were going to say something, Pat. Uh, I was only going to ask for the benefit of our listeners, certainly not for me, to remind <laughs> us of the year of this particular disaster and uh, the details I of it. To, it was like 1997. I think the Apollo 13 lifted off on April 11th, 19. Yeah, President Clinton had a lot to say about it. They lifted off at 1313 military time. Well, maybe they, they should did. have thought twice about that. Yeah. No, they, they talked about that. They were scientists like, we don't believe in any ad. So, you know, I realize, oh, but I realize they were... there's some spoiler territory here if we spoil for people. Spoil it. What really happened in this actual historical event. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's about Apollo 13, the, the mission of Apollo 13, and the fact that their trip to the moon failed, and that yeah. it became a new a new problem to solve. How do you get these these astronauts back home? Because their spacecraft is effectively three, you know, ninety percent dead. Yeah, and they're in a giant metal tube in the most literally the most hostile environment that we've ever encountered. <laughs> and. And you got to get it, and, and if you don't get them home, mm. it will be a disaster, not just because three people will die, mm. but because the future of the program of sending people into space is in jeopardy. But thankfully, they brought them home, and the space program is now alive and well to this day, yeah. so it all paid off. <laughs> Happy endings all around. <laughs> I, was going, oh, I was going to ask how close is the film Apollo 13 to the actual events that because I haven't read the book but I've seen the movie and I thought it's it was excellent actually, it's actually pretty close I mean they have to over, they have to simplify a lot of sure. things in the film you know it's two it's a two hour film they were traveling like six or seven days I can't remember exactly yeah. how long it was to take the free return trajectory from the moon so there are a lot of things that they, they have a great chart here for oh, you oh very nice uh, on the back cover, that's that's nice. I have oh, yeah. the soft cover version of the book. So anyway, yeah, six days. Uh, <laughs> little red copy. Um, so uh, one thing that I would say is uh, really interesting, in addition to reading this book, uh, the film Apollo 13, the DVD release, includes a commentary track by Jim and Marilyn Lovell. Oh. Awesome. So <laughs> there are a lot of times where Jim will say, all right, so what they did here is they simplified it. They, they took, you know, like three problems and they simplified it down, it took mm-hmm. it down to one. Or they created this situation. Like, like on the, in the film, they talk about the CO2 levels rising in the spacecraft. And mm-hmm. In the film, they create a dramatic moment by having it being, be very surprising when they're like, oh, yeah, it turns out we figured that out. And it's like, no, nope. they figured that out super early in the process. <laughs> they, were working, they were working towards a solution to that. I imagine that right would be the, the first thing they looked at <laughs> was what, do we have air? <laughs> will, they, will, they able to breathe? will they be able to breathe for six days? Um, yeah, so so there was stuff like that where they create yeah. they create a moment of drama that mm-hmm. that maybe they do it simply. I mean, the, the the drama of needing to come up with a way to scrub the CO two out of the air is not unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It's just that 
they put it in a different part of the experience mm-hmm. right. to draw the tension out over the movie in, in a different way. But for the most part, it's actually quite true to what, how, how things went. It's a, th- it's a thing I love how they talk about the commanders. Uh, throughout most of the experience, his tone is sort of weary and exasperated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not panicked. It's not desperate. It's, uh, seriously? Like, yeah. It's, it, Another just has goddamn that. thing. That's <laughs> sort of where all of us are right now in this country. Exasperated. Not to bring up politics. <laughs> Good <laughs> God, man. Yeah, I know. I, I do. <laughs> but I do want... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 I keep interrupting you. I feel like uh, th- this is an example of... It, it's unfortunate with humans, but I can't blame humans because I do better... I think I do better work on deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh is that we come up with some of our best ideas when we have to. So we can have these scientists that can sit there and invent these things out of products that weren't uh, supposed to be used for for this purpose, and they can do it. Uh, And war very often leads to all sorts of inventions. Um, One of the better ones is uh, the computer, I think. Isn't the computer... A yeah. war invention? It, it arises out of the Second World War. I mean, it goes through a lot of iterations before it's what we would recognize as a computer. It's got its roots back the in space, the 19th The space century. program also yeah. also <laughs> has a lot to do with, with the modern Werner computer. von Braun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the space program has a lot to do with things like Velcro and yeah. microwave ovens mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Yeah, and Silly Putty. Silly Putty, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, everybody I, was a war investor. One of the things about war is that there's just so much money going into the war. A, a nation's resources are like, well, Which, we need to solve this problem, so let's invent some new stuff. And then that's something that we will be willing to do when we when we are put into the corner. Yeah. And so the reason why I brought up politics, I didn't want to, but I was like, well, you know what? Um, <laughs> maybe that's something we recognize in ourselves, and subconsciously we may vote some once in a while to purposely create an emergency situation <laughs> where now we have to come uh, up with some sort of solution to global warming or whatever. I have heard well, this I... thesis so many times and I have never found it deeply <laughs> convincing. I, I think it is, it is an interesting point that if uh, that we, I, I actually was doing a podcast about this just last night on my geese without God podcast. We had a, a climate scientist on mm-hmm. and we were talking about some some books the heartland institute sends out de, quote debunking global con- climate change unquote mm-hmm. um and talking about the fact that what the climate change debate does is it wastes scientific resources on proving something we already know mm-hmm. which is global climate change is happening humans are causing it mm-hmm. um to whatever degree that is humans causing it versus natural variation. You know, we know these things to be true, which means our scientific resources should be focused on fixing it, which they are not. Sort they of like aren't. the CEO situation in Apollo 13, where right. they knew that problem was happening, and then they were working towards it. Right, exactly. And You and sort better of like, be going somewhere Sort of like, the, sort of like, sort of like <laughs> the, cause, the cause of the failure on Apollo 13 was they designed something to do a very specific task and it didn't occur to them what that they had to design it for what if that task fails yeah. mm-hmm. a black swan event yeah, yeah. It, i mean it's literally what happened is they have a they had a tank 
that could be heated that, that was safe mm. up to a certain temperature. Right. Well, it was heated up to a temperature 15 or 20 times higher than that. Yeah. The problem is the thermometer that had been installed in the tank only <laughs> went up to the red line. So the thermometer told them they were just at, just at the maximum, but it never went over the maximum yeah. because that was all the thermometer was designed to do. <laughs> That's so, amazing. That's yeah. exactly the kind of thing that is going to result in absolute disaster. Like what happened. <laughs> exactly. it, 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 but so, is that really a fault? Like who? It didn't occur to them yeah. that that would, you know, whoever designed the thermometer was told, well, the temperature in here can't go yeah. higher than that. Well, let's make the, sure the thermometer tells us when the temperature <laughs> has gone to that, and then they will assume it goes high. It's gone high. But, um, but so. It's the same kind of thing that that you know they fixed it on every future mission and every, <laughs> but but we solve problems by necessity. We don't solve problems. We, we are we are really bad at proactive behavior. Though though I I think it's worth pointing out that uh, they spend a lot of time on just how much time, energy, money, and resources they invest in trying to proactively solve these problems. Yes, I'm, I'm with Philip. The, the engineers <laughs> are the real heroes of this They story, are. Right? They <laughs> are. And they, the, the, the thing that, that makes They you, failed in the specific instance, but well, there are also yeah. 10,000 ways yeah. this could have gone but there's wrong. No political, <laughs> there's no political support behind that kind of planning. I mean, they oh, may have done it. Oh, but there is. Retroactive. Re no, no, fact, no, no, no. be like, oh, you... This is the entire point of the book, I would argue, because one of the most fascinating things about it is uh, how politicized everything that the scientists are trying to do is. Mm -hmm. And uh, even decades before Apollo 13 is ever launched, it is still something that they are very conscious of the political ramifications. You should, have, of, you ever though, watched, like, have you ever watched From the Earth to the Moon? It was an HBO series produced, produced by Tom yeah. Hanks. And it is a, I believe, 12, um, 12 episode uh, series. Each, each episode is devoted to one of the Apollo missions. Mm. So the episodes that I think are most fascinating is one called Spider, which is about the development of the lunar lunar landing module um just fascinating about how much work they went through to design that that right. piece of equipment but the other one is the apollo one episode um and the reason that the apollo one episode is fascinating I mean, there's this emotional component of these astronauts dying on the mm -hmm. pad as they did but then there's this huge political component mm -hmm. of how that disaster nearly derailed the entire program yeah. politically because the worst thing that could happen to them politically was somebody dying. Yeah. And this book illustrates so well the incredible consciousness everyone involved has from engineer to astronaut that if anything goes wrong, it's the end for the space program. There is no one involved in this program who is not intimately aware of that as they're trying to make decisions. I think that that's, yeah, there's political support behind the idea of, of uh, no one dying within the design of it. But what I'm more talking about is the political okay. support of the populace. Yeah. People don't, yeah. Aren't, don't get excited about 
prevention. You don't get excited about less. Yeah. How many years of money can we put into designing this so nothing will go wrong? And you look at the Challenger. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if I have the, this facts totally correct, but there was a there was people on the team who were like, let's not launch now. There is a problem. Mm. And they're like, no, this is the most this is the most exciting time to launch. This is when right. we're going to have it. So we didn't want to wait because it was a political motive to no. not wait. But right. Anything that occurs on that scale is going to have a political dimension. Yeah. Sure. I don't remember the Challenger. Challenger was 84, 80, 83. No, Challenger was 86. 86. The O-ring failed because of the temperature. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember Richard Feynman doing that demonstration where he dunked him in ice water and then cracked him. Mm. Cracked them in half, but I don't. There was there was a launch issue. Like they they launched it too quickly. Is that what it was? They, there was there was a recommendation. There were people who who were concerned about that very issue who raised mm -hmm. a, a red flag about it, and the decision was to go ahead with the launch anyway. And I can't remember what the um, details are, but there was somebody like the the president was there, or the governor. <laughs> there was some sort of thing where they couldn't reschedule. The well, audience. That was, that was when they yeah. had a civilian going up on the on the crew. Yeah. And they really wanted it to be. It was it was a big, it was a big deal. But and there the, were a lot of, there were a lot of failures of imagination. And this is one thing that I found one of the many things I found fascinating about this book was uh, uh, the press is listening to all correspondence yeah. between the shuttle yeah. and Earth in real time. So, and largely because earlier there had been a disaster where some people had died before they successfully launched and they tried to deal with it internally. And well, that was Apollo 1. Right, and it looked yeah. like a cover-up and then there was all this public backlash to it. So the new PR guy was like, all right, we're not going to look like anything's being covered up. Everyone listens to everything. And consequently, they are having to be incredibly guarded in what they say to each uh, other because yeah. the, they don't want to look like things are as bad as they are. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I think, yeah. darn. I think that piece when, we talk about, <laughs> when we talk about speculative fiction, and yes, this is a nonfiction book, but I think that we, even when you read nonfiction, there's a recognition that some of this is kind of speculative. It bounces around in time. Mm -hmm. It'll it'll go back and tell you something about Jim Lovell's childhood before it bounces back forward to tell mm -hmm. you why that piece of information is relevant. And so it is still a, a, a work of fiction in the mm -hmm. sense that mm -hmm. it's not giving you a completely linear narrative. It's bouncing around and telling you the pieces and, and switching your camera to this person over here which may or may not be happening simultaneously with this thing that we just read about up here. Though I will say I was resistant to many of the more sort of self-consciously literary touches mm. to the book. The, the, the fact that any time an ancillary character was introduced, we'd get like two pages of their biography and then they'd say two lines and then we'd go on with this. Like, <laughs> it, would, it would tend to and do this kind me, of thing. Of that like, to me feels like feels like part of the Jim Lovell I mean, yeah. it is part of the, the influence of, of the way writing works in a way, but it's also the influence of somebody who's like every single person at NASA is important. Yeah. You know, I admire it intellectually. If I'm going to introduce this character, you're going to know why this guy matters. Yeah, yeah. there's the documentarian yeah. impulse and then there's the narrative one, and they're not yeah. always going to align, right? Mm -hmm. It's like from Lovell's yeah. point of view, this person deserves recognition and his mm -hmm. story deserves to be told, but it might, in terms of the narrative, 
interrupt things and yeah. seem like yeah. <laughs> I think that that's an example of, the, and now I'm jumping back to a podcast that we recorded at a different time, the Kill Your Darlings thing. Mm-hmm. is um, To the author, it's really important that these people get credit, mm-hmm. but it doesn't serve the story at all, and so let it go. It's just kill, kill that. Because it, it kills the momentum. That's what it sounds like. That was my feeling. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't know. If there were like a dozen people involved in saving my life, I think when I wrote a book about the fucking thing, I would be like, let's make sure that I talk I, about I don't, Ben Sandell saving my life. I don't begrudge his impulse to include them. I'm saying it for sections of the book made of trying to pick apart what was happening a challenge. Yeah. So but then it gave me a little bit of a challenge to return to what's actually going on. Yeah, I get it. And especially when you're in such a compelling life or death situation and here's what was going on 40 years ago and it's like, all right. <laughs> all right. And that's, uh, that's Lost Moon and we will be Oh, God, just say it. Say what? What am I going to say? Just say something. We'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. You are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. Up next, we have a submission from one of our regulars. Joshua English Scrimshaw is the co-producer of Comedy Suitcase, dedicated to creating live comedy for all ages, as well as co-host of Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to Doctor Who, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast, which revisits the great horror and suspense shows from the golden age of radio. Without further ado, enjoy the next chapter of his ongoing serial, Bucky Starburst, Junior's Space Cadet. Once again, it's time for Bucky Starburst, Junior's Space Cadet. Brought to you by Jasper Tallywhacker Jr., the world's richest fanboy. Today's adventure, Death Wears a Snap Brim Cap. But first, a word from our benevolent patron, Jasper Tallywhacker Jr. Thank you, Mr. Announcer Man. Boys and girls, when my daddy bought me Bucky Starburst, he told me I could change whatever I wanted. My first idea was to marry Sue the crap out of it. Kill off Bucky and replace him with a super rich, super sexy space cadet named Asper J. Wacker Tally. But I'm too big of a fan to do something drastic like that. A true fan wouldn't change a thing. A true fan would just sit here, episode after episode, and bitch about how much it sucks. Like today's title, Death Wears a Snap Rim Cap? Seriously? You might as well call it Death Wears Adult Diapers. I mean, how hard is it to come up with a badass name? Answer, not very. Just string some cool words together. Who cares if it makes any sense? Today's adventure, Twilight in the Shadow of the Abattoir. (laughs) Boom, badass. Or better yet, just steal the title of literally any Emily Dickinson poem. Today's adventure, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Or, today's adventure, I heard a fly buzz, 
when I died. Or today's adventure, my life had stood a loaded gun. Or today's adventure, wild nights, wild nights. Tell me when to stop, okay? Stop! I'm starting to feel a funeral in my brain. Now for crying out loud. And now back to Bucky Starburst, Junior Space Cadet. When last we left our little chum, his hero, Tom Cosmic, was finally telling him the amazing, shocking, preposterous story of how he came to be trapped on the robot prison planet, Chappic Prime. It all started when Commander Space, head of Space Patrol, sent me on a secret mission to destroy the Fungaloid War Fleet and eliminate their leader, the malignant General Deathcap. I said, totally in the first person, hoping to make my story more intimate and exciting. <clears throat> According to intelligence reports, the fungaloids were amassing spore launchers along the Truffle Nebula in direct violation of the Porcini Accords. I already know all that, interrupted Bucky, despite the fact he promised not to like two minutes ago. Impulse control was not the kid's strong suit. Skip to the part where you kicked some fungaloid butt. That's the weird part, I said. There were no fungaloid butts, not a single moldy butt cheek. When I got to the Truffle Nebula, there were no spore launchers, just a bunch of spectroscopic relay stations, interrupted Bucky. Again? Captain Gravity was right. Commander Space lied to you and me. Okay, here's the deal. I said, smiling in what I hope was a loving, paternal way. Either you shut your cadet hole and let me finish my story, or I punch you so hard in the neck you'll need a larynx transplant just to say thank you for teaching me the power of silence, Mr. Cosmic. The kid opened his mouth to answer, but thought better of it. Instead, he slapped both hands over his maw and nodded for me to please continue. I was happy to oblige. Like you said, the only thing I found were spectroscopic relay stations. I scanned them for booby traps, but they were exactly what they seemed to be. Harmless scientific equipment. This had to be a ruse. A trick to lull me into a false sense of security. I immediately set coordinates for Fungus, homeworld of the Fungaloids. I had a mission, and I was going to complete it come hell or hyperspace. My rocket had been fitted for war, stocked from nose to thruster with every kind of munition known to humankind. I was ready to fight the entire Fungaloid fleet, but as I hurtled through enemy space, I encountered a distinct lack of enemy. Just stars. Stars that do not give a damn, to quote Auden, which I do a lot when I'm alone in my rocket. Because in space, nobody can hear you be pretentious. 
But the shock I felt at not finding enemies on my way to fungus was nothing compared to the utter flabbergastment I felt at not finding enemies on fungus. The planet was defenseless. No fleet, no spore launchers, not even an atmospheric force field, just a bland brown orb plopped in the middle of space, begging to be attacked. It had to be a trap. But what could I do? This was my best chance to take out General Deathcap once and for all. If I could find him, that is. No human had ever seen the evil fungaloid dictator, not even on vid screen. After the first spore war, the peace treaty was negotiated by diplomats, signed by Deathcap in private before being telespored to Earth for Commander Space to ratify. It was oddly satisfying to know I might be the first Earthman to ever lay eyes on Deathcap. And if my trusty Raygun had anything to say about it, the last. The computer blinked and booped at me. Preliminary scans of the planet had detected an anomaly, a non-organic construct of some kind. That was weird. Fungaloids use nothing but living technology. They'd never in a million space years build something from artificial materials. My gut told me this is where I'd find General Deathcap, and my gut is never wrong. Except for that time I ripped the ceremonial moo-moo off the Uranian ambassador because I thought she was a Venusian blood reaper in disguise. Yeah... She was definitely Uranian and had three engorged udders to prove it. Anyway, hoping to keep the element of surprise, I landed the rocket in a swamp five miles east of the construct and hiked the rest of the way. The air was thick and sweaty, so I changed out of my Space Patrol-issued spandex onesie and donned a light and breezy cotton romper instead. The terrain was disgusting, all mires and marshes and muck. As I got closer, I heard a chorus of strange gurgling voices, fungaloid voices, chanting in unison. Hey, hey, ho, ho, General Deathcap has got to go. I scrambled up a slimy green hillock and found myself standing in front of a small metallic dome. Clumped at the front of the structure, near what looked to be the only entrance, were the chanting fungaloids. They were like no fungaloids I'd ever seen before. Their caps were splotched with vibrant swirls of color. Fringes of emerald moss dangled from their gills. Stalks, arms, and even faces were decorated with flowers and crystals. They carried signs with various slogans like Make spores, not wars. Fungus for justice. More shroom, less doom. And one that simply said Abolish the Electoral College. Uh, excuse me? I said, is General Deathcap in there? The fungaloids turned and looked at me in comical unison, except for the one with the electoral college sign. 
He ignored everybody and kept chanting something about power to the portabellas. Whoa, said one of the fungaloids, a real live flesh monkey. Trippy, said another one, her cap decorated with a wreath of what looked like enormous dandelions. Are you here to make peace with death, Cap? If by peace you mean rest in peace, sure. <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. But the fungaloids just stared at me. One of them took a long drag off a fat green cigarette and held it out to me. Dude, he said, you're gonna want a little herbal courage before you confront Death Cap. No thanks, I said. I've been waiting 20 space years for this. I want all my faculties intact. Unless you have some whiskey, I'll totally take a snort of that. Blank stares again. I pushed my way past the kooky fungaloids and strode purposely toward the dome, one hand on the grip of my ray gun. To my surprise, the door slid open. I looked back at the fungaloids. The dandelion one gave me a thumbs up. Groovy, she said. Death Cat must be expecting you. Tell him his people don't want another war. We just want to live in peace and study the stars. Stars don't give a damn, I said, and stepped into the dome, which was totally badass as long as you don't know I stole the line from a poem. The door slid shut behind me with an automatic swish, and I found myself in a claustrophobic control room. That's when the penny dropped. This wasn't a dome. It was an escape pod, half buried in the mud of fungus. Welcome, Major Cosmic, said a distinctly non-fungaloid voice. It is a pleasure to finally meet you. The pilot's chair swiveled to face me. Sitting in it was an old, battered robot wearing a rather natty snap-brim cap. Not knowing what else to say, I went with the obvious. You're a robot! Please, robot is so generic. Call me General. General Death Cap. Oh, kids, is General Death Cap really a robot? Does quoting random lines of poetry really make you badass? Is it just me? Or is this story actually starting to go someplace? Find out next time when Jasper Tallywacker Jr. once again brings you Bucky Starboss Jr. Space Cadet. Right now, welcome back to the Sometimes Not So Silent Planet. Does enjoy just recording you when you have no idea you're being recorded. So you probably could have been recorded. You probably didn't even press stop that entire pause. So all that stuff you were saying about you, you know who. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's out there. It's out there. Now. It's out there. Yeah. A speculative <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Joining Sorry, <Mom>. me <laughs> is uh, our guest Tim Wick, 
who has a story he would like to read to us? Is there any intro you would like? Well, I wrote this? this. I wrote this this afternoon. I was thinking about the book that I asked you to read, and that was kind of. <laughs> you where wanted to write something on extreme deadline. That's the only way I write. Um, so it 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 took. Well, let, I'll talk a little bit about my inspiration and why I chose to write this after, but just that that my starting point was was the book Lost Moon. Do you have a title? Uh, no. No, I, I <laughs> titles the last thing, and I wrote it this afternoon, so um, it doesn't have a title yet. We will come up with the title for Thank it God. by the end of the story. <laughs> so. Lost Moon by Tim. <laughs> Just a well, you know, <laughs> the title, <laughs> the five hours later, the, the title could be Lost Moon. We'll see. We'll see what what you think. Anyway, uh, Director Cullens looked at the volumes of information stamped eyes only that covered her desk. Upon taking her current role as director of NASA, she was handed a key to a safe which contained access codes for a different safe, which had the first two digits in a nine-digit combination. For the next several hours, she had followed carefully coded clues to discreetly <laughs> hidden locations throughout to Independence Square. The scavenger hunt ended in a lockbox underneath her own desk, in which the books that now lay in front of her were found, along with notes from every director who had preceded her. She read the notes with growing disbelief, even going so far as to assume all of this was some sort of elaborate hazing ritual. But then she read the documents, and she called some of the numbers she was told to call if she didn't believe what was in the documents, which she didn't. In the end, she was forced to come to the same conclusion all of her predecessors had been forced to make. The moon landings had been faked. Not just the moon landings, actually. The entirety of spaceflight was an elaborately planned hoax. That wasn't even true. Spaceflight was real and happening all the time. The reasons for it were the reasons why the moon landings were faked. They were the same reasons the director had gone to the funeral of a man who, she had just learned, was not actually Buzz Aldrin. The space race between Russia and America had been dreamed up by Kennedy and Khrushchev to direct, distract the world from the real space race. The men and women who had been sent into space had, for decades, stayed there. On Earth, they had been replaced using highly advanced closing technique, cloning techniques the director had recently assured Anderson Cooper did not exist. Stranger than the cloned astronauts of the fact Stanley Kubrick had, in fact, directed the fake moon landings was the reason for all of this, a reason every director of NASA and the Russian space program had been willing to continue fabricating massive lies to deceive the public, a reason the most brilliant minds in the world were being identified in grade school and housed in an underground facility in Florida, a state notoriously hard on underground facilities. A reason the President of the United States was only told if the six directors of the project determined he or she was responsible enough to keep a secret. The current guy, they all agreed, was not. She now knew something fewer than 1,000 people knew, and most of them knew only pieces. Reality check number one, aliens were real. She'd always believed aliens were real. As Carl Sagan pointed out, if we're alone in the universe, it seems like an awful waste of space. That fact wasn't particularly troubling. Reality check number two. Aliens, at least the aliens we knew about, were hostile. That didn't make any sense at all. Why would a species risk the challenges of interstellar travel just to make war on another species? Still, when Yuri Gagarin, the real Yuri Gagarin, had somehow managed to avoid destruction when he first encountered the aliens in 1961, he relayed a story of a massive ship with a massive laser that tried to destroy him before he could return to Earth. 
It was only through some clever maneuvering that he was able to ram his craft into the alien spaceship and disable it. No matter the species, spacecraft are designed for space travel. They are not designed to take on a lot of damage, especially from a race the builder assumed was too primitive to defend themselves. Reality check number three. The International Space Station was a massive weapon designed to defend the Earth from an expected <coughs> invasion, and most of the men and women who had gone into space between 1961 and the present day had been living and working there for most of their lives. Gagarin, of course, had not survived initial impact with the alien vessel. In the controlled environment of the Soviet Union, it was easy to have another man take his place. Over subsequent missions, men were left on the alien ship to search for information. Volumes of data had been transferred back to Earth to be analyzed by computers without enough processing power for the job. Slowly, the technology caught up. Another ship was coming, a larger ship, a ship that would have to be destroyed. So while John Glenn and his Russian counterparts labored on the alien ship, and while clones took their place on Earth, the Gemini astronauts began carrying the pieces of the defense plan into space. When the Apollo program began, it was time for people to stay in space to begin the decades-long process of building the weapon. Ed White, Roger Chaffee, and Gus Grissom were the first. Because cloning was dangerous and expensive, the public was told they had died during a test three days after they had actually launched into space. Unfortunately, the accident had ignited a firestorm in Congress, and the scrutiny, NASA be the scrutiny of NASA became a challenge when it came to carrying out their actual mission. Every calamity in the history of the space program had been a ruse. No one had ever walked on the moon. There was no time for exploratory science. They were in a race to save the lives of every living thing on Earth. The leaders of Russia and America determined that telling the population of the world was too dangerous to risk. Shortly after Glenn orbited the Earth, it was determined Kennedy himself would need to oversee research on the crippled alien craft. Lee Harvey Oswald was the man chosen to ensure the public would be distracted when a rocket took Kennedy into space for the remainder of his life. All of this was unbelievable, but Director Collins had spoken to the men and women of the alien craft on the alien craft and seen vi the video of Kennedy, who had died only a few years ago, working with them. She saw the space shuttle's Challenger in Columbia docked at the International Space Station, waiting for the command to spread the massive Mylar dish that would focus energy from the sun <coughs> into a beam that would destroy an interstellar vessel about one quarter of the size of the moon. She had spent the last 16 hours making sure it was all real. She had told her family a lie about making an emergency trip to Florida. It was a lie a woman on the other end of a special phone number had helped her arrange complete <laughs> with a news story and video of her touring the vehicle assembly building, a building she had yet to visit at Kennedy Space Center. It was real. The public had been deceived for years because the panic it would have caused had they known it was less than 50 years, because of the panic it would have caused, had they known it was less than 50 years before aliens would destroy the planet. And now, 75 people lived on the International Space Station that was, of course, over 10 times larger than anyone believed. An alien ship had entered the solar system 10 years ago and was decelerating towards Earth. The weapon was ready. It could make one shot. And when it did, nobody would be able to miss the enormous beam of light in the sky or the massive explosion that would, briefly, be brighter than the sun. All of this would happen under her watch in approximately six months. She picked up her phone and called her Russian counterpart as she began carefully packing all the books back into the safe underneath her desk. Her counterpart picked up before the, before the phone rang. Good morning, Director Collins. Anastasia? 
How was your first day? I imagine you have a pretty good idea how I'm going to answer that. There was a long pause on the other end of the phone. Faintly, she could hear Director Breslin asking her assistant to leave the room. The door clicked shut and Director Breslin spoke again. A lot to take in, yes? Yes. I don't know if I'm angrier that there was no way for anyone to tell me all of this before I said I would take the job, or because very soon all those damned idiot conspiracy theorists are going to be crowing about how they were right. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> At least partially. Well, I tell you what, Anastasia, we are going to make sure we blast that thing back to wherever it came from in subatomic particles, but then we're going to do something even more important. What's that, my friend? We're going to land someone on the goddamn moon. <laughs> awesome. So I, I, I know that you, for whatever reason, you made the choice to present this as though it were fiction, but uh, <laughs> I will defend the truth of these events against all others, no matter how many facts they bring. Good luck with that. <laughs> so, yeah, so I they might have missed something <laughs> in the middle there. Was there, um, were they assuming that this spaceship was going to be dangerous? Uh, well, there was a spaceship that attacked the Urgagarin. Oh, it's Canada's attack. Okay, yeah. so I just missed so, it. So, so there... Try to keep up, then. Well, <laughs> I'm drinking a lot. I get, I get, I get beer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote it um, because I think uh, fake moon landing conspiracy theories are stupid. Um, but I, what, I, what I did was I tried to come up with a situation in which I could accept the fake moon landing. <laughs> Basically, some reason... A reason... Yeah. That you would do that. Yeah. That yeah. was that was important enough to <laughs> falsify all that information. That was. It's that a good was, rule for writing fiction in general. Find something that bugs you. Yeah. Just something that bugs you, and then make a story about it. Well, I find that very comforting. That story <laughs> <laughs> means that there's a whole, you know, international community designed to keep us safe. Well, they, got, they have a plan. They're working together. I know it's impossible from so many different angles. <laughs> I, I, I allowed for physics, but not for the the nature of human behavior. But uh, and and you know it, it, it takes all these people that died throughout the history of the space program, and they're all alive, and they're just happily working towards the betterment of humankind. And I, I realized that that there's a little bit of Pollyanna there. Well, you know, but, but, but you know, <laughs> you take away uh, some of the um, the the. This sort of a planned approach to this community coming together, and you can still make the argument that even if we don't plan it, there is um... <laughs> planet. What? <laughs> oh man, good one oh, there, man. God. You know, I, I just Thank God, God you're please, listening please, to this podcast. Oh, man, oh, I did not plan that. <laughs> oh my God! Oh. <laughs> You have taken time out of your human existence to listen to us have this conversation. Uh, I just want to well, draw everyone's attention to that. Could you do better with your time? <laughs> you could um, play netball? <laughs> yeah, I could be, I could be could, playing Zelda Breath of the Wild right now. I'm sure you could play that game while listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure you could do two things at once. I'm yeah. sure you could play that game while being on this podcast. <laughs> I wonder if anybody's had sex with this podcast going off in the background. I don't think so. <laughs> if, that, if I find out that's true, I will finally have achieved it. 
is giving a woman an orgasm. Are you going to finish your thoughts or is it gone? Virgin's attendees, please hook up with someone while listening to this podcast. Uh, It's a a thought that a stoner might have, and that is that if a a white blood cell and a red blood cell or white blood cell and a a virus get in a fight, if you look look closely microscopically at what's going on in your body, it's like a constant war, and they have no idea what's going on at the macro level, which is your body, which is their little little war where they have no idea is what making is what's making this bigger thing possible. So even without this idea of having this community doing this bigger thing, we could just in our in our just even without any conspiracy theories, just our shitty things blowing up and war could be there could be some bigger thing. So I'm going to take Ben's incoherent rambling yes. stoner thought and well, try you. to try to do the because this is uh, uh, what you were saying, Pat. You were you half jestingly said I find this notion comforting. The <laughs> I mean, but isn't that like the underlying impulse behind most? Conspiracy theory yeah, of well, the absolutely that there's someone yeah. behind the curtain that you know good or yeah. bad there's sure, some yeah. reason for it going on that this isn't random terrible human chaos it's a brilliant chess master but somewhere it, but that's, making but that's, <laughs> that's the point I'm trying to make is mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be some sort of plan it the the random <laughs> chaos could still be there could it could still amount to something that is a chess match you're talking yeah. about the real world now. Well, we, really, yeah, really, I'm talking about I want to draw attention to the fact that we have witnessed Ben's transformation from atheism to pantheism. <laughs> 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 so have a rage for order. <laughs> no, because you wouldn't, going back, to the, going back to the blood cells, you wouldn't call blood cells, uh, you, they could still be atheists and still believe in the human that they're a mm-hmm. part of. Yeah. So that's, that's all I'm saying, <laughs> that, that just because something's chaos and seemingly meaningless doesn't mean there isn't something that is... Like it's like one of those. Oh, images. I stand by it's like, my it's like one of those. It's like one of those images where the image is made up of a bunch of tiny little pictures or little dots. When you step back, it comes into focus. So are you, you have no idea what the thing is that will come into focus. So are you suggesting, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, that uh, from our limited perspective, things might seem uh, meaningless mm-hmm. and uh, combative and chaotic, but that there might conceivably be some higher pattern somewhere. Well. I would argue that that higher pattern could also be meaningless, but I wouldn't argue that there isn't a higher pattern. And he may just be talking in reference <laughs> to the story, <clears throat> that the story is is taking these seemingly meaningless random well, things as and I making them all a part of a, a larger pattern. And isn't that what conspiracy theory <laughs> it is. is? It is. It yeah. Is. It, and so, you know, that's why I wrapped the assassination of President Kennedy into the... Uh, the entire conspiracy. I figured, why should it be just one? Why can't it be more than one? <laughs> There's a great image from Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49, where uh, Oedipus, the, the heroine, is trying to figure out whether there is an actual conspiracy out there or whether the people she's encountered are just paranoid, just you know, making up patterns where, uh, uh, where they don't actually exist. And this is mm-hmm. in the context of the late 1960s, where there's lots of paranoia going around, FBI infiltration of different uh, radical groups and things. And the image that she comes up with is that of a planetarium, where you see the stars uh, projected on the, um, on the inside of the dome, and then there's the overlay of what the constellations are right. that make Orion's belt or that sort of thing. And that's her central question, Should I, shall I project a world 
is, I think, the, right. the, the, the quotation <coughs> there. Is it is there a pattern there, or is it just me making that pattern? But you, there. you mean you kind of have to project the world in order to live in it. Well, I that's, mean, how, that's what that's the how human we, brain that's does. That's how we live. Yeah. Yeah. But whether they're there or not in the real world... Our, our remains, brains are yeah. wired to look for patterns. And you can, even when they don't exist. But you can look at people who can make mm -hmm. patterns. I mean, a lot of like the, the, the smartest mathematicians um, are, are people who can see patterns, really. But sure. then you also see these people kind of go crazy. You, I, I've seen people who are really smart, um, and then in, as they age... I'm flattered, become, but you can use my name. <laughs> uh, I... That people will... People who, go, who fall into conspiracy theories had at one point in their life just been really brilliant people and it, it, but how close it is to uh, of brilliance and being able to see patterns that are actually there how close that is to seeing patterns that aren't there well they're right next to each other well and so much of the danger is uh, these category errors where um if you're seeing patterns in nature for example or in mathematics that may or may not tell you something real mm -hmm. about the world if you're seeing patterns in social behavior that also might tell you something real about the world or you might i think i would argue that you're making more stuff up like oh that person said something to me and i'm interpreting this according to my pre-existing idea of how social social relationships work and when you're moving it to a metaphysical or a theological <laughs> area yeah. then i uh well, you know, I mean, as an atheist, I have my own particular views on that, which is that there's nothing there. Uh, but uh, the temptation is clearly, clearly to see things like as above, so below, and mm -hmm. to see that there must be a model of a, a supernatural element in what we see in the real world, and et cetera, et cetera. But, you see where I'm going. But isn't this so much of what being a writer is, is taking a series of what seem to be random events and either, depending on your perspective, discovering a pattern in them or imposing... A pattern on the. I mean, that's exactly. what narrative Tim just is. That's exactly what, I, what well, I was like. doing in, in this was taking <laughs> random events, going, yeah. all right, well, what if all of this was, what what if there was a reason for all of this beyond just a race to the moon? What if there yeah. was some there's a design? Yeah, what if there's a design there? Not not and and, and it isn't necessarily. A, I mean, to me, it is. A bit, <laughs> it is a bit of a dismissal of the idea of a faked moon landing because I think mm -hmm. it takes a, a dramatically horrific event to or, or a looming event to make something like faking a moon landing yeah. necessary in the eyes of whoever makes this decision in the eyes of kennedy and khrushchev mm -hmm. but uh something i always think about when i i, I when i work for a newspaper and we constantly have people send in letters or call to talk about how much of the conspiracy that we have. Uh, they, would, they would take the newspaper, and this was the Mankato newspaper. So not a big newspaper. Like, like a 30,000 circulation or something. But even that, to people in that town, we were helping cover up things, and we were contributing to various uh, malicious conspiracies within the city and the government. And I just remember... That was when I, because I had kind of been susceptible to conspiracy theories at that age, where I was like, oh, maybe there is a thing, Kennedy. And at that point, I was like, <laughs> with so many people calling in and thinking that we were part of this conspiracy, I looked around the newsroom <laughs> and all the, the, the messy desks 
<laughs> how terrible every single one of us were at communicating with one another. Yeah, that's like, a CIA plan. Very, NSA. The very idea that we would ever be organized enough to have a conspiracy <laughs> was absolutely oh, ridiculous. Yeah. Anybody who's ever tried to be been in a situation where they tried to have more than two people keep a secret knows, knows that a conspiracy of any size is impossible. <laughs> But uh, no, it's it's the whole because uh, I mean the latest big one for our generation is the the nine eleven attacks where mm-hmm. there's the conspiracy the that they yeah, yeah that these were but and again it's which is one of the most ironic names for a conspiracy <laughs> ever. It's good, ever. It's good branding, but yeah, but yeah. but it is it's very, it's very much that speaking from nineteen eighty four. Yeah, yeah. Um, double speak. Double yeah. speak. Yes, double speak. Well, yeah. well, and and it's that thing of uh, I mean I certainly don't. You know, I'm cynical enough about government that I believe that, yes, they probably would exploit tragedy for their own ends. But in terms of the sheer mechanics of creating (laughs) this series of events, like... I have seen no evidence that my government is organized. And you know, you know, you know, you'll note in this, you'll note in this story that all of this is acting essentially outside of government. Yeah. That it's like, should like we or should we not kind of. tell the president of the United States that this is going on? I don't know about this guy. Let's keep it. Don't yeah. double think, by the way. Sorry. I oh, yeah. Double think. I misspoke, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was certainly the case after 9-11 that uh, they exploited that for all it was worth. Oh, yeah. But uh, there was no <laughs> which, evidence as far as I can tell that they knew about it in that contributed yeah. to the conspiracy, the fact that they did exploit it. And uh, it, it does make it, it, it gives motive. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does provide. And and to be clear, I'm also cynical enough to believe that, yes, they exploited it after the fact, but I don't believe they, like, manufactured this scenario in order to explain. No. Well, it all has to be it all has to be evaluated on its own merits because yeah. there have been plenty of occasions of government conspiracies, CIA coups against Guatemala. Oh Guatemala, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I believe Watergate. conspiracies happen. Yeah, yeah. Gulf of Tonkin, you know, <laughs> but of course Watergate being but, a fine but, example of a conspiracy that didn't work. They got <laughs> Caught, yeah, um, yeah, you know, because the more people you have in it, the less likely it's going to work, right? <laughs> Which is why this story is speculative Fantasy. fiction. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> and concluding on Tim's assertion that the story is absolutely true, and the people listening to this should definitely create a subreddit dedicated. To exploring its truth. I can't tell you. When, when, we come, I, when we come back on the break, I know we do a different section, but I do want to bring up another subject to talk about briefly. When I post and that this is, story. And that's the subject of titles. This is the second podcast in a row where we've had a story. I just wrote it this title. afternoon, you son of a bitch. And I want to talk about titles real quick. We will be back with titles. <laughs> are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. If you're in the Twin Cities metro area and would like to hear some live storytelling, or even sign up to perform yourself, we present a recurring monthly open mic at Kieran's Irish Pub in downtown Minneapolis. More information about this and many other spoken word events in the area are available at wordsprout.org. And now, back to the podcast. prepared for this next section beginning ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the not so silent planet a speculative podcast 
<laughs> nice oh, aspiration. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, was, that was a good one. Ben that, has a very... That, that was the longest payoff ever. <laughs> <laughs> it was just... Well, Ben has a profound I truth to say about titles. Well, the longest a, setup. For, <laughs> for the I don't have a profound truth. But I, have, I have a question I want to ask, and that sure. is, uh, and I, I was just this thought. I'm not attacking, but this was the second. So okay, so Pat Harrigan and Tim Wick both told stories, and neither of them had a title. Mm-hmm. Now Pat was like, "I have a title." I just didn't want to share what it was. <laughs> and it made me very curious to what that title might be. Like, how can it be so... I gotta be clear. <laughs> I think it's important that he said he had a cocksucking title. <laughs> I have a cocksucking title. I'm not going to share it with you. He's, he's apparently Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I can go first unless you have a follow up for for. Well, what, <laughs> my, my, my question is, and because and I bring this up because I I I really sometimes I'll come up with a title before I do anything else, mm-hmm. and I will use the title to. <laughs> I I love titles, and I have a friend that will not name he or she, but she or he said <laughs> said just said say to Z. Me, <laughs> Z Z said um, you you always title your stuff, and they're like yeah. And and Z said, why? Huh. And that <laughs> has bugged me ever since because I think that titles are a, a they're in, they can add so much to your story because oh, they can I've, give yeah. they can give you a little bit of a clue as to what the story is about. They mm-hmm. can be, you can say something in the title that is not actually said in the story, but then when you put the story with it, so there's just it's just it seems like it's part of the package that shouldn't be ignored. But but it seems to me too that there's definitely like a fringe culture thing, in, and again this is not, I in no way mean to present this as a bad thing. This is different people approach different ways, but I think a, how a lot of marketing minded fringe performers approach this is they do come up with a titling concept and then create their show later. They yeah. create a great show later, but they start with well, a marketable speaking concept. speaking for myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I'm guessing, in your case, uh, the 221B Baker Street, I'm guessing the title came early on. The title came first. That. Yeah, exactly. The title came first. Well, I mean, and the, then you the made base, a show The base based concept on of the show, I, like, <laughs> thought of the base concept of the show, said, what would it be called? It would be called... And to think that I saw yeah. it at 221B Baker Street. Yeah. Yes, I love that title. I can write that show. Uh, with short stories, and I mean, I'm going to agree with Ben. I mean, the main reason I did write this story this afternoon. And so the story, the idea for the story came first. So I worried about writing the story yeah. and then was going to go back and figure out the title later. And to be fair, that is hard. It is hard to come up with the title after the fact. Yeah. And the thing is, I think titles are dramatically important. I think for plays in the context of say a fringe festival especially a title can get people in seats Mm. an interesting title can go a long way (coughs) towards getting those first 50 people to buy tickets to convince the next 50 people to go Mm. um but and i think that's the same for stories to a lesser extent um you know where right because people are typically not purchasing access to a single story so the title bears less weight is that what you're saying exactly so i post my stories on on my blog approximately weekly um don't always make it but my goal is to Mm. post a new short story every week um if people are reading it uh and judging by the number of hits they're not but if (laughs) if, if people are reading it they're going to come back because they like what I'm writing, not because of what I title it. 
Right. Yeah, if but don't you, don't you think people, that... Wait, 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 wait. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Let me finish right. my, my thought, drunk, drunk man. All right, so... <laughs> if people are not reading it, a title can get them interested in seeing what it is. So the thing that will get most people to read a story is I've read something by him before, heard him do a, mm-hmm. do a reading at Not So Silent Planet, and I liked what he, what he wrote, and so I'm interested in seeing the next thing. That's number one. Number two is... Oh, that title makes me want to see what it's about. Yeah, but so what you're arguing is the title is a marketing tool. I think it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it is as well. Mm-hmm. But what I'm arguing is that the title is part of the overall package I'm, of the of the product. It's, well, it's, sure. I don't think I'm disagreeing with that. Yeah, and I get it, too, in that, like, the title can be... Uh, and titles for me typically do come late. And I think I'm unusual among most of our colleagues in that respect. That, uh, I'll go, like, I'm working on a friend show right now, and I've gone through about four different titles, and I don't quite know what it's going to be called. And but just, I have just, a draft just, of a script. Just to make clear, <laughs> Philip is the... Master of titles. I'm really great at titling marketable things. That's why you're the highest paid performer. But I, I will say I do believe in the notion of uh, creating a title because I I do get a lot of mockery for titles because I do tend to pick some weird obscure thing that but if you come to the show and then the title comes back and it illuminates something that happened before it and uh, so i'm trying to do some like weird arty thing with it that doesn't work (laughs) marketing wise but here's that's the thing that's the that is the key to a title is that it simultaneously is a good marketing tool and yeah it represents a good artistic key to the overall story or play sure i agree i mean it's got to be a good marketing tool it's got to be a hook get some interest in the show but if you name a show, and to think that I saw it at 221B Baker Street, and it's not Sherlock Holmes mixed with Dr. Seuss. You just need to make <laughs> switch. Your, your, your goal is to go, hey, everybody, who loves, Russian everybody, who's been, everybody who's been wanting to see Sherlock Holmes mixed with Dr. Seuss, this is the show for you. I've just yeah. titled it in a way that you can't mix up what's going on here. Um, and so it is a marketing tool, but it is also part of your storytelling. It is it is establishing an expectation for the audience. So um, I think I'm probably coming from uh, a slightly... Wait, before we go, what is your cock-sucking title? <laughs> no, i got to lead up to it, Tim. Oh, okay. <laughs> i got a whole thing. So settle in. We're never going to get to that one. It is for a story that isn't part of this podcast either. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was part of this podcast, but not this episode. Go listen to the last for, episode. For our, for our readers, who are listeners. Oh, for, so, so, but actually, Hi, this, is, this, is, this is instructive because uh, I'm a little bit different than the rest of the people at this table because uh, my primary thing is not writing stuff for performance. That's a relatively mm. new thing for me. I write stuff for the page. Yeah. Um, and so, generally speaking, back to your original question, uh, my titles will probably come about halfway through the process. Just yeah. gen- generally speaking. Like, oh, I've written something, and this seems to encapsulate what the theme was, and then I'll bring it forward as a title, and then I'll continue with what it was. Um, with what I uh, read for the last podcast which was part of a larger series of spoken word things. And again, I'm new at this spoken word thing. Um, That was originally written for the Encyclopedia Show Minneapolis, which is performed monthly uh, at Karen's Irish Pub. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are given themes to write upon. So 
This year it was floods, dragons, marching bands, shame, prairies, public transportation, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we're up there on the stage, we don't read our titles. We just we are assumed to be uh, performing something related to that theme. Mm -hmm. So I never have a title for what's being what I'm performing mm -hmm. that month, except that I write one for my own personal benefit for the eventual publication of all of these things together. And those titles are deliberately, and I hope comically, as anodyne and as <laughs> academically astringent as possible. They should be like the like the most boring sort of <laughs> titles you're going to read in Critical Inquiry or whatever. So I will... Uh, I, I will read you the titles of some of the things that I have written. So for marching bands, I the title was Marching Band Hermeneutics, A Preliminary Approach. <laughs> uh, for prairies, it was Midwestern Folkloric Anthropology, Etiology, and Modern Exemplar. Uh, for, uh, what the fuck was this? Public Transportation was Field Report on Post-Salazarian Literary Survivals. For Bards, it was Bard-Saturated Operatic Landscapes, A Survey and Appreciation. And so for the, the one I read uh, on this podcast last week, which was for the, uh, the theme of shame, it was artistic guidelines for the resistance, a negative case. Yeah, I got, I got a question for you. Do you read David Foster Wallace? I have read his, uh, I haven't read Infinite Jest, and I haven't read any of his other novels, uh, but, I, <laughs> I, but I, I'm a big fan of his essays. And the, yeah, so those titles yeah. that you have remind me of the titles that he will give yeah. his essays. That, yeah. That's very much mm -hmm. a David Foster Wallace type. And I, I love the yeah. kind of, those well, kind of titles. Well, in this is going to sound so pretentious, but he and I come from the same uh, uh, academic background. We we he's a <laughs> half a generation earlier than me and much more famous than me. But uh, we we studied the same people in college. That's the kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's where yeah. this, that's where this is coming from. Okay. And uh, none of the so I this is a roundabout way of saying that there's no there was no reason last episode for me to say this stupid ridiculous fucking title <laughs> because it makes no sense. But when it's with 25 other pieces right. that are also as ridiculous, <laughs> hopefully it'll have some resonance. Right. It would yeah. be a funny sort of recurring yes. joke, essentially, that you have these incredibly long-winded titles for each. Yeah, <laughs> well, hope, yeah it was, let, let's hope it works. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a unifying theme. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, I got All right. out of my system. Titles have been resolved. Hey, <laughs> hey, guys, Convergence is coming up because Hooray. this is totally going up on time. Anyone have anything to plug? I'm doing a show titled Spec, a speculative fiction storytelling show at Convergence on Saturday evening at HarmCon. That's Spec. all. <laughs> I, because I could not come up with a better title than that. Actually, that may be the intro to this, is you just... Spec. Spec. <laughs> I will be on a panel with many people familiar to those of us at this table. Mm -hmm. Tamir Wren, Jerry Balich, 
Don Krasnowski, Melissa Karcher. We do an annual drinking <coughs> panel yep. related to drinking some, with geeks. Or is that a uh, it is not drinking with geeks, which is but another separate drinking panel. Oh my <laughs> god, how many drinking panels are there? Well, that's the thing. Not <laughs> enough. Apparently. How come I'm not on a drinking panel? There's more than one. Would you like to be on this panel? Let me explain what it is. Uh, every year we pick an author and we do some drinking related panels. So we started with Lovecraft and then we did Poe. Uh, we've done Jules Verne and we did Dr. Seuss. And so this year will be pan-galactic gargle blasting. Ah, uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, with Douglas Adams, of course, Matt Kesson is also on this panel. And I have no idea what it's going to be like, except my wife Carrie will be uh, making us drinks in the side and we'll be talking about literature and booze and things like that. So, And Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, I assume. <laughs> Wouldn't it be weird if that just never came <laughs> up? <laughs> um, a little. Especially given the, totally. given the name of the panel. It would be super weird. Uh, let's see. I'm going to be doing a lot of things. I The thing that I have been most proud of is uh, doing Big Fun Radio Fun Time, which is a live radio show. <laughs> takes place before opening ceremony on Thursday at 6 p.m. Uh, this year there will be uh, some several new scripts that I'm writing, uh, which have been at least in part inspired by Not So Silent Planet. Awesome! So uh, <laughs> check that out. And yeah, uh, uh, we Ben and I will be hosting a live recording of the Not So Silent Planet a Speculative Podcast. Joseph and Joshua Scrimshaw. What? I should probably tell them they're on a podcast with each other. <laughs> you can't get them in the same space. It's like from it's like the Star Trek episode. Would that be your last battlefield? They're actually with, the same person. No, it's like yeah. one has a white half of the face and the black no, half I of get the face. It. And one of them has a black half of the face. It's just very dangerous, Ben. You're being very insensitive. To these, I, no, no, I, 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 I tell it like it is. How insensitive can you be to Joseph and Joshua? I don't know. Uh, but yes, we're doing that. Uh, I will also be hosting the very first Convergence Poetry Slam. And uh, I will also be doing a reading, probably. I expect if I'm lucky, uh, there will be. Do you know be... what day the Poetry Slam's happening? Did you sign up? Friday for night. Reading? Friday night? Yes, and did I did you... sign up for a reading. Because uh, yes. nobody asked me. Uh, uh, do you want to do a joint reading again there, Phyllis? I would be game Did to. Did you sign up for a reading at, at or somewhere else? No, I have poetry. Uh, wait, what? Well, the poetry you, slam The poetry started. slam is at Harmcon. Yeah, but your reading mm. is not at Harmcon. Yeah, no, it's it is in the not. reading room, probably. Oh, okay. I just don't and uh, we're also doing a reading. Uh, so last year we did a reading called Wonder Woman, the Golden Age, in which we read uh, my best attempt to create an accurate word for word reading of William Moulton Marston's first appearances of Wonder Woman. This year we're doing Superman, the Golden Age, where I have been combing through about six different Jerry Siegel sources and trying to nice. make sense of how this weird alien becomes a, the original social justice warrior, really, in the, in the literal sense of the word. <laughs> and a Jewish hero, right, I, from, right from the get-go. I, I maybe should work that into the description, Superman, social justice warrior, and see how that... Uh, yes, you should. I yeah, should, you should see how that plays out. Look at you being out. all, like, marketing savvy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, title, so that title discussion worked. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ben. I started last time. You are, because we gotta end with the. Uh, it's gonna. We gotta end with our feature. So. Okay. Or whatever you say. I guess this goes to you then. <laughs> An author shall not create a digital social.
social media universe in which a high percentage of the replies pertain to the author's request for contributions. What? I am going to have to read that again because I did not understand I don't, anything I just I don't know. I'm going to dive out before you read it again you and say... so much diving. This is, this is one of those, because I do read these and type them in and do the whole thing, and this is one where I read it about a half dozen times and was... And he is clearly referring to some specific thing that I don't know what the hell he's referring to. Thing? I that's my guess, but I really don't understand. Why this do you one. type these out? Don't people just send these to you in text form? Yeah, but I have to format them so they can be printed and cut to put in the hat. Because yeah, you, if there's no hat, you, you this is ridiculous. Thing, this whole farce you know falls apart. You know, there's a thing called <laughs> copy and paste. Yeah, there's a, but yeah. the physicality of it then. Yeah, yeah, but you right. can copy and paste it into a format that you then print. That I, is what is, I've It is done. my impression. Yeah, of, but you're talking about typing it up. It is my impression of Philip, and this is not because I believe <laughs> I he understand. does not embrace modern, <laughs> modern technology, but it is my impression of Philip that perhaps there is a certain percentage of him that misses typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, knowing, and, and, and having that impression of Philip explains to me why... <laughs> He types this out <laughs> for himself. There's, a, there's perhaps an ownership you, to ben, something that you type. You, Ben, who is a yeah. better friend of Philip than myself, <laughs> should understand a little better than me. I, honestly, the more I know Philip, the less I understand. All right, that's fair. You guys know. I want to hear this again. I want yeah, to hear let's it again. hear it again. Well, let's hear yeah, it again. Because I don't, all, I, I've been for, reading it and I still don't get it. All, there's a marketing thing. For listeners, the, uh, these rules of semiotics uh, are submitted by guests of the podcast. So anytime I like have I, like criticize one of these, I always they're also add, like, crowdsourced from online. So oh, are they? Not, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. well then, yeah. fuck them. So this All might right. not be some mm-hmm. guest on our podcast. It may just be. Some- <laughs> I know who this may be Bruder. Bru has opinions about this. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, this, this reads a little bit like Rob Callahan. Hi, Rob. No. <laughs> it's not Rob Callahan. I'll say that. <laughs> We're just kidding, Rob. I'll admit, I'll admit, everybody, this is mine. Uh, really? <laughs> then, right, you, then okay. you should read it so the rest of us can understand. Right. It. I will try. Son of a bitch. Here we go. I have had a lot of alcohol because this is the second one recording in one day, <laughs> and it always happens after fucking six hours of recording. <laughs> An author shall not create a digital social media universe in which a high percentage of the replies pertain to the author's request for contributions. What? All right. So my best guess, having read this a couple of times, my best guess is this is describing a very specific scenario Mm -hmm. in which someone is going online and trying to create a shared universe with a bunch of other authors. We'll call that Philip and Ruben (laughs) Alou. And the, and, uh, but the other people aren't contributing, so the original creator just keeps messaging them to contribute. So this is meant to be like some sort of tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, people not submitting to a shared universe. That's my best guess. Yeah, I think, (laughs) I mean, it sounds like a little bit of a, um, like someone made... Uh, a big deal out of a social, uh, a social network, mm-hmm. and all of it was just 
response to that original author saying please contribute shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just yeah because i still uh, don't get I, it i'm gonna say it, that i agree with philip and pat yeah it, 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 i mean like i'm guessing I'm not, down, I'm, really. I'm, I'm not fighting um, for this interpretation yeah. i'm saying it's the one that makes the most sense to me of what I... is it making fun of you for asking for contributions to this rules of semiotics is it let me take a look no, I don't think it is because the person who submitted this isn't a guest on the podcast. Yeah, so yeah, that I makes mean, it more suspect. Right? <laughs> like, I feel like they're now making fun of the fact that they are. T- oh God, this! I think they wanted so, to so take is our it, brains. Is it making well, fun of succeeded. the planet? No, <laughs> I think they. It could be making fun of you. This is really it, good it could radio, be. You, you could be right. Okay, read, read it one, more, just one more time. Let's hear it one more time. An author shall not create a digital social media universe like the not-so-silent planet, although I would think that would be a very grandiose description of what the planet is, uh, in which a high percentage of the replies pertain to the author's mine request for contributions. Yeah. That doesn't quite make sense to me. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't get all Oedipus about it. I don't, think, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a conspiracy. It's clearly yeah. referring to a very specific thing, and I don't know what this all thing right, is. I'm going to say. <laughs> I think it's John. Get rid of it. I'm going to say. Uh, I wish. Do you know who this is? Can you email this person and ask? I do know who it is. So. I'm going to say as, clarification. As, we'll as, next as someone who calls himself an author. <laughs> having read this role, <laughs> I will confidently say that for the rest of my life, I will not do this. <laughs> and I will confidently say for the rest of my life, I will not know what this is. <laughs> you guys, fucking result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, right. All right, Pat. <laughs> All right, what do we got here? We have an author shall. Is that a requirement? An author shall? Is that I, something you add? I listed it as an example when I requested some of these, mm-hmm. and a bunch of people adopted it in a formal it, way. Because that's how, uh, that's the, how like, like a city, like when a city's um, passing a like an ordinance, whereas say shall, which means must. Well, because the the thing is, it it's, gets my hackles it means, up. It's a, it's a <laughs> it really legal, does. It's a legal way of saying that this is the law. Oh, well, well yeah. but it's it's because this whole thing is referencing the laws of robotics yeah. of the the you know. Interesting. Oh, so that's where it's that's laws of semiotics, laws of robotics. So, so again, uh, I mean, it feels terrible. (laughs) But people, author shall do this or the other. (laughs) No, absolutely (laughs) not. Whatever you're saying, I shall do whatever the fuck I want. Just just keep in mind that this piece of paper has James Joyce over you. No, James Joyce did not. But I'll keep in mind that Samuel Beckett shall do this. Fuck you. But. For the purposes of this podcast, an author shall negotiate language in good faith. The laws of style and grammar exist to convey ideas clearly. They shall only be violated when doing so conveys an idea even more clearly. Uh, oh, well, you know, just like our last podcast, this is a universe of, of uh, <laughs> possible uh, discussions. I think, I think what... Um, Negotiate language in good faith. That that does not do that. Well, well I, does I, I negotiate language in good faith. I I mean, I think what it's saying is, if you are going to subvert the laws of language and grammar as we know them, then you should be doing it 
to in a specific story. Right, in good faith, to a specific purpose. Well, anyone who does that is going to say it's in service of the story. I'm, right, I'm yeah, reading... Right. I'm reading well, unless yeah, they yeah, are very I, good at grammar. <laughs> I, 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 I am I currently read. reading Alan Moore's novel, Jerusalem, uh, uh, which has uh, characters speaking in a Northampton, uh, England dialect. Oh, what and, novel doesn't? <laughs> well, exactly right, right? You know, it's... A, it, at no point will you say, oh, that's wrong. Oh yeah, my yeah, goodness! Yeah. Oh horrors! You know, because fucking, of course. But, so pe- but people will probably say that he's doing it in an interesting way or to a specific purpose, which I think is what this is at least trying to say. I mean, you see this a lot. In again, you can't. Um, I, I I don't think that this applies to every. I think that a lot of people are grammatically incorrect because mm. they have no idea that they're being wrong. Mm-hmm. So this is a, this is. Directly addressing people who know the proper grammar and the proper mm. set, set and structure and, and are deliberately breaking it to make some sort of point. And you see this a, you mm. see this all the time in literature. You see incomplete sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see uh, just pur- purposely going out of the way to break the rules mm-hmm. and to make a point. And it does. And that's fine. Uh, I think maybe what this is getting at is that j- just make sure you know what the rules are before you break them, and then make have a good reason to break them. I mean, it's essentially saying, <laughs> it's essentially saying you need to have have a good command of grammar if you're going to break the rules. If you, of course, <laughs> breaking the rules is fine as long as breaking the rules makes sense. If your grammar yeah. is crappy, and then you have a character who speaks. With crappy grammar, there's no way to differentiate that character from anything else that you've written. Um, you don't write do or do not. There is no try mm-hmm. unless you understand how grammar is supposed to work, and uh, and that you are choosing an unconventional grammar for a dramatic effect, or to say something about a different culture, or to right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I- we're all going for the most generous possible interpretation. Well, well, yeah. And you know, I'm coming back onto the other side, and uh, I'm saying that possibly the the writer of this rule uh, is trying to indicate that yes, you should be as precise as you possibly can with the conventional rules of grammar in whatever uh, environment that you're writing. Mm-hmm. Let's say 21st century American English. I agree sure. with that um, because poor. Gr- well, I have read many, many, too many uh, <laughs> short stories by friends or acquaintances that uh, they just don't have the, the the grounding in how to tell how to construct a sentence. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, well, I'm done. I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. gonna read it. I'm gonna read a paragraph, and I'm like, oh, well, no, that that will never get published, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to invest my time and energy into editing that mm-hmm. into a form in which it could be published. Do you say this directly to the person who's giving you the story? <laughs> oh, no, I deep six it. I, I, I'm just like, oh, thank Well, yeah, at, this point, and, and, and at this point in my life, people don't even bother anymore. And, and when you see but, those kinds of blatant errors, and when they are errors, not choices, doesn't it just kind of feel like you didn't care enough about your story? No, I don't think that, I don't think yeah. that's the case. No? I don't think that they didn't care enough. I think that they don't know enough to know that they were wrong, that they that there was an error. But I feel like if I'm writing a story and there's something I don't understand, I make a concerted effort. But they don't know they don't understand it. That's because you yeah. have a, a trust in the author. 
Uh-huh. But also, if you if you don't trust that the author can yeah. keep right, his or her right, right. tenses correct, for yeah. example, you're like, well, I don't you I don't have the time for this. Yeah. Um, I mean, God bless the editors who can find those people who mm-hmm. are. Oh yes, you have a good natural talent, but you have been underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Let's let's do that. I, uh, uh, there's the um, the famous but, story. But on of, some level, but but, but uh, like yeah. Raymond uh, uh, Raymond Carver, who mm-hmm. was very famous for writing for the New Yorker, um, apparently his style was kind of crude and underdeveloped. But whoever his editor was, found it and built it and really developed mm-hmm. it. And so now we know who Raymond Carver was, but we don't remember who that editor <laughs> was. Uh, and that's, I mean, God bless. That's that's heroic fucking work there. I, I am yeah. legitimately resistant to the idea that someone is a brilliant writer who can't construct a series of sentences without a dozen errors in them. It feels a lot like I would go to a... Really? Yes, I am, because I uh, like if I were to go listen to a concert pianist and he would tell me, oh, this person is an amazing composer, but they trip over the keys... So what if, you know, what if Mozart, Mozart, like, what if in Mozart's oh, symphony, what if so that that I'm gonna I'm gonna 100 see that's a bad okay. analogy. Okay, yes. okay, because, okay, sure. Because sure, I can me, write then. music, but I can't play an instrument. Yeah. Okay, sure. So, mm. but I, other other than sing, but even so, I can put together notes in a way that works. Mm. But I can't. If if you ask me to play it on a piano, I mm. couldn't do it. Mm. So, could somebody? put together words in a way that works without completely co- comprehending the laws of grammar? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. they probably could. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where an editor can come in and say, all right, well, this is this mm-hmm. is good. You've got, Your ideas are all great, but grammatically there are some things that, that need to be fixed. And I do have sympathy for, because I've always, I've been in my life, I've struggled with spelling. Mm-hmm. It's just never been something that my brain Spell check has. is the greatest thing yeah, ever. Yeah, and I really have relied on spelling. And I've gotten better with, spell, with spelling, but... There was a time where I would I felt like I legitimately couldn't be a writer because I was just ter- I just never bothered or felt the urge to re- to memorize how the weird thing the weird ways things are spelled. But mm-hmm. there were so many people who were who would be very judgmental about the fact mm-hmm. that um, anybody who can't spell can't write. Well, and F. Okay. Scott Fitzgerald was the same way. He couldn't spell with a damn, and he's more famous than any of us are. So it's true. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody... Especially more famous than Philip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of somebody like uh, Amos... Maybe Tua- title is shit. <laughs> <or whatever. Maybe. laughs> I think of somebody like Amos Tibatola, the Nigerian writer who um, got <coughs> discovered by Dylan Thomas and those guys in the 1960s or whatever who had learned English. I mean, he was literally a guy who grew up in the bush in mm. Central Africa and eventually became kind of semi-famous for mm-hmm. writing novels that are not at all conventional by normal English language standards, mm-hmm. but have have a power and an interest that transcends that. It's like, well, are his sentences exactly correct? No, yeah. no, very <laughs> much not. But but would you give up this novel for a, a novel with correct sentences? Of course you right. fucking, Of course you fucking wouldn't. And I think Tim's analogy there is exactly correct. Okay. The the, the composer okay. and the performer of it. Mm-hmm. There are many people who can compose great things who can't necessarily perform them exactly. 
Yeah. I think that the and what do we think of as exactly? <laughs> I think with this rule, well, it's clarity. At, I mean, I, I don't mean to clarity is one thing. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, ultimately, really, that's the only reason we care about things like about, spelling it's about and grammar is it's because about, it's successfully communicating whatever it is you want to communicate with somebody, mm-hmm. whatever those means might be. And there has been more than one self-published novel on this very podcast that I've read that I have struggled a lot with just because every paragraph is riddled with problems. And the, the again, I'm not denying that they have interesting ideas mm-hmm. or things that they're trying to do, but I'm also looking at it and thinking, I you really saying. didn't of care course. enough. Okay. You didn't care yeah. enough to get someone okay. to look I at this. Okay, I see what you're saying. Like, you know? so, what, so go back to my point of like, yeah. I can't, I was bad at spelling. Uh, but I also know I'm bad at spelling, so right. I get people to read it and go, or I have spell check. Yeah. I make sure that I get the spelling correct, even though I'm bad at it. No. So I care, so that's what you're saying. I care yeah, enough yeah. to make sure I fix this problem yeah. before I put it out into the world. Yeah. yeah, I'm working on a book right now, and I know that at least three other people are going to go through it Yeah. before I submit sure. it. I, I, you know? I, I, <laughs> I think that... that <laughs> And good I'm sure grammar, it's full good of grammar errors. grammar is like, important you know? unless you specifically want the grammar to be poor. And yeah, but then we're talking this, about a conscious choice. Right, yeah. and, like, that's, and that's, 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 that's what this that, law is. This is yeah. All this law is rule. saying is <laughs> good grammar is important unless there's a really good reason for the grammar to be bad. <laughs> it's, the, it's the know the rules before you break them. Well, we yeah. took this person's law and we made it into about all of our personal neuroses <laughs> about writing. <laughs> and also apparently piano playing. So Tim, I have picked already. Tim I, has I picked final law. It's a short one, and it says, no, not an author shall or shall not. <laughs> it says, no deadly cat and mouse games. Well, None. That is a terrible fucking cliche. <laughs> I think that's one of mine, actually. It I may think, be one of yours. I, I think that. it's something that I contributed as part of a larger thing. <laughs> that, like, here are a million turns of phrases yeah. that you should never fucking use. A bunch of yours so, are in there. It is in quotation. So, I mean, are you saying don't use that phrase? Or yes. are you saying don't use that storytelling so it's, convention? But it's kind uh, of like, if it's in quotations, it's, it, it is mine. And I'm saying don't <laughs> use that fucking phrase. I All feel right? like, I feel like the, the, the big thing about this is don't use cliches. Yes. Isn't uh, that every one of these laws of semiotics? <laughs> 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 hasn't, hasn't this last section of the podcast become TV Tropes the podcast? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, the last, I would argue the last one wasn't about cliches. It yeah. About, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this one, yeah. No, I, I, I think this is an important thing because I think people yeah. use cliches all the time and and people are told to not to use cliches all the time, and they still fucking do it. And every time it comes up in a story, it takes me out of the story. And yep. like that is yeah. uh, that is just a, that's a cliche, and yep. you should have known better if you were paying attention at find, all to the universe that you are yep. playing in. I find myself getting frustrated if I have a character talking and using a cliche, even if it makes perfect sense that the character would use a cliche. Yeah, yeah. that's um, actually a really good point I, because. <laughs> Uh, Tolstoy did that all the fucking time. I mean, it, that was an indication of the of the uh, intellectual uh, parochialism of his characters that they would use this cliche. So it was right. a it, it identified that character as a type of person, right? Now that might be a little yeah. little 
patronizing too, you know. But, uh, but it's it's fuck that, Russian peasants. Right. Right. God, I hate that cliche. Well, <laughs> Russian aristocrat is probably what he was what he yeah. was going for there. Uh, but yeah, it's not that the cliche itself. Uh, the cliche exists in the universe. People can use it, but how do you deploy it? Essentially, or you know, George Orwell says, uh, "Have you seen it in print before?" Yes. Then it's a cliche. Mm -hmm. Then and, don't use it. And it is easy to fall to that into that trap. And I and that was my when I first got introduced to the idea of cliches in high school. Uh, I was like, well, what? Well, what if that's? The, it was the exact same thing. Right. What if that character is just somebody who uses that cliche? Well, you're not writing a story that exists in reality where somebody might use that cliche. You're creating your Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Invented his own cliches. Right, right. Mm. I mean, they weren't cliches at the time, but he Damn. invented turns of phrase that became have, have a turn survived. of phrase. But they mm. were original things that maybe sounded like cliche, like that yeah. this would be a cliche. But he came up with it. So you build itself out. You you build it out backwards. You say, who is this character? Is this a character who is interesting and uh, and, and original, or is it someone who just uses received garbage yeah. all yeah. the time? So you and I disagree on this, as we disagree on so many things, and it's almost <laughs> as though the two of us are just trying to set up some kind of freaking you know, intellectual verbal maze we're making the other person run through. And, to the audience, and it's as to though... the audience listening, Philip is looking at me. It's as, though, it's as though you and I are playing some sort of, I don't know, <laughs> deadly cat and mouse game. <laughs> ah, <laughs> all right, Philip. Ah, all right, okay, here we go, everybody. Philip <laughs> is going to make an argument in favor of cliches. Here we go. No, that was it. That, that was no, the no, payoff. No, 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 no. Well, okay, that was just—he was setting up a joke. That was good. That was a good joke, but I know there's truth behind that joke. You're gonna be so disappointed. <laughs> We're just gonna stare I, at I, each I, other I'm in silence. For How did you feel? You're the only one who has. You made a joke. Should Pat and I, and I awkwardly leave. Right now? <laughs> that Slowly. The joke was good. You made a joke, but you didn't actually give your uh, opinion about this rule. So, what was your idea? Uh, the phrase is a cliche. It probably shouldn't be used without tongue planted firmly but in cheek. I think about, I agree with everyone at the table here. How do you feel about the use of cliches in stories, in dialogue, etc.? Uh, I think they should only be used when they're being used in a very deliberate way. Okay. So we all kind of agree. Like, yeah, I like have it. no opposing position on this argument. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, this, <laughs> this deadly <laughs> cat well, and mouse game. Really there's four of us. Can so. we name the podcast? This deadly, deadly cat and mouse game. Cat and mouse and dog and aardvark game that we have been playing. Come <laughs> <So laughs> to an end. And uh, thank you all for tuning in, and we will theoretically be back in two weeks. Check us all out at Convergence if you are in the midwest at double tree in bloomington is it bloomington? on july yeah, 6th 7th 8th and 9th yeah all right those are things Have that exist night. yep each story holds a thousand seeds a proverbial pomegranate a jewel of possibilities a not so silent planet
A not so silent planet A not so silent planet